0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
2: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them.
1: Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that
3: we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
2: Think Health on 2SDR 107.3.
3: Hi, welcome to the show. Ellen Lee with you. Today, we look at why the cause of death for adolescents has remained unchanged
1: since the 1990s. And They said, oh, I use this herb and I think it's very useful for me and it can relieve my symptom.
3: Why menopausal women use complementary medicine. Well, depending on where you stand, last week's budget was safe, boring, and forgettable. But one issue that's not going away is the Medicare indexation freeze. The federal government and Health Minister Susan Lee announced they will save over $900 million by continuing the freeze until 2020. The Royal Australian College of GPs launched a campaign on Monday, the first day of the election campaign to warn patients of the impending price increase for healthcare, care. But how much more can we expect to pay to see the GP?
4: Then every Australian, from newborn babe to Prime Minister, can share in the cheapest, simplest and fairest health insurance scheme Australia's ever had.
0: Medicare.
3: That's Bob Hawke in 1983, encouraging every Australian to fill out their Medicare enrolment form a stark contrast to the previous Fraser government, who tried to destabilise Medibank as it then was.
5: In Malcolm Fraser's um, time in government, so uh, 1975 through to 1981, he instituted a lot of the same types of changes as Minister Lee is currently um introducing into Medicare. It was then Medibank. So we, we with Malcolm Fraser we had Medibank Mark I, Mark II, Mark III and Mark IV before he finally dismantled the scheme in April 1981. Why the history lesson? Well Malcolm Fraser learnt the hard way that healthcare doesn't
3: operate in a supply-demand way like the rest of the economy.
5: And in his later years when he was interviewed for a book called Making Medicare, he said that he was unable to reconcile macroeconomic reform with health because health doesn't operate like other markets. So you you can't apply simple um, principles of supply and demand to health for the simple reason that demand for health is infinite. This is Margaret Foe. She's a lawyer, a
3: registered nurse and CEO of the largest medical billing company in Australia. She's also currently doing a PhD on Medicare Claiming and Compliance at the University of Technology, Sydney. So Malcolm Fraser's lessons might be something current Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull should listen to. But what is indexation? If you visit the GP and you get bulk billed, you don't pay a cent. Instead, the government pays your GP $37.05 for the consultation – This was rising with CPI, or the Consumer Price Index, up until 2013, when the then-Labor government announced it would freeze the Medicare indexation. This freeze has now been extended by the coalition until 2020. Up until now, GPs have taken the hit. It means while the costs associated with running a practice, like new technologies, wages and other admin costs, have risen – but the amount GPs receive has remained static. GPs are saying they can no longer afford to just accept the $37.05. And
4: if the income that I'm earning as a practitioner is is fixed and frozen, I'm going to have to start looking at either decreasing my services, which is really not good for the health of the nation, or starting asking my, my patients or a contributory fee.
3: And that contributing fee is what's being called the co-payment by stealth. Before we get into the so-called co-payment, you might argue that GPs earn enough already and that they can afford to continue on business as usual so long as they take a pay cut. Not so, says Dr Frank Jones.
4: So most GPs are actually not in this um, for the money. Yes, of course, we earn earn a a relatively good income compared to the rest of of the population. We also put in long, long hours, uh, and we also deal with lots of consequences of decisions that we make. So it really is a relatively high-risk profession as well.
3: Dr Jones is president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, or RACGP, and he's also a GP from regional Western Australia. So how much money are we talking here? How much will we have to cough up when we see a GP?
4: Uh, Yeah, I think you'll find that that category 2 patient paper on healthcare cards will be copying probably a cost of something along the lines of 15 to
3: $20. 15 to $20?
4: Yeah, I think that reflects the true situation if you want to provide a quality care service. Uh, but those are the figures that have been talked about uh, in GP circles.
3: Keep in mind that that is someone with a healthcare card, like a pensioner. It's even worse for the rest of us. The out-of-pocket costs, according to RACGP, could be around $33. That cost is passed on at the GP's discretion and it will change depending on the area you live and the type of practice. Dr Jones says GPs may still choose to bulk bill disadvantaged patients but this will also be at the GP's discretion.
4: You know, people who are really disadvantaged in my community here, for example, the homeless youth, um, for example, people in aged care, people in palliative care, uh, people in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Uh, who have multiple health problems, but probably are not as financially uh, well-off as other people, I think general practitioners will continue to cop it on the chin.
3: As mentioned earlier, this is a co-payment by Stealth. But it's not exactly a co-payment. Margaret Foe again.
5: And I actually think there's a lot of confusion on this concept of a co-payment. It's illegal to charge a gap. When you get bulk billed by your doctor it's actually illegal for them
3: to charge a little bit extra. So if doctors do decide to charge their patients more, they will have to charge you the whole amount and you claim your $37.05 from Medicare later.
5: When doctors say we're going to charge you a $10 co-payment, what that actually means is that you're going to have to pay $47.05 up front. You have to have $47.05 cash Available on the spot because that's the law. So what you'll have to do is pay forty-seven and five, then you will get thirty-seven dollars and five cents back. So the impact on patients is not ten dollars, you know, twenty dollars. You've got to have the cash up front to pay the full amount because that's the law and that's the way Medicare works. So if I'm if I'm a
3: student, for example, and you know I'm living paycheck to paycheck, I get sick but don't have enough money for another week. I'm not going to go to the doctor, am I?
5: I wouldn't have thought so, Ellen. I, 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 you will actively seek out a bulk billing doctor because you will want to be able to walk into the clinic, be treated and walk out, swipe your Medicare card and not have had to, you know, hand over any uh, money. And, you know, as students, um, vulnerable people, um, you know, uh, low socioeconomic groups, all of those people will be really, really heavily hit um, by these um, cuts, in my view,
3: this may make you yearn for the days of the seven-dollar GP co-payment, but Margaret Foe says any co-payment is a slippery slope.
5: If you introduce co-payments, you've basically destroyed the universal health care and, and bulk billing because what it means is bulk billing it just becomes. Well, there's no point in having it. It's just here's the government rebate, and then we'll just continue to charge whatever we want. And what we know with co payments in other countries is once they've been introduced, the only direction they go is up. Margaret and Dr. Jones agree any cuts to primary health
3: care, like GPs, is bad news for the health system.
4: We actually know, and this is very well recognised both within Australia and overseas. But countries with a strong general practice primary health care system have actually overall better health outcomes. So it's a little bit illogical to be targeting general practice particularly.
3: Margaret in particular cites the price of showing up to hospital versus the price of seeing your GP. $398 for the hospital or $37.05 for the GP.
5: Um, And, you know, a a vibrant, thriving primary health sector is critically important to the overall functioning of our healthcare system because it's the front door. And if you put barriers up at the front door or make it unattractive for um, people to to access health, they will go to hospitals, and hospitals are much more expensive. So you compare this. It's $37.05 to go to the GP. By comparison, if you go to a public hospital emergency department, the last time I looked at the figures on the Independent Hospital Pricing Authority website, which was last year, the average cost of a non-admitted adult presentation to a public emergency department was $398.00. So there is no, it's just a no-brainer. You want people going to GPs, you don't want people going to hospitals.
3: Both the Minister for Health and the Shadow Minister for Health were contacted for this story. Both were unavailable for comment. However, the Minister for Health, Susan Lee, pointed us in the direction of a statement released on Friday, saying bulk billing rates have increased under the Turnbull government. We will provide a link to the statement on our website. But back to the other Malcolm, Malcolm Fraser. We know he admitted health doesn't work like a typical economic model, says it should, but were his changes effective?
5: Malcolm Fraser, um, eventually, everything he did made costs go up and they were designed to do the opposite and in the end he dismantled the scheme. So um, I think that is a cautionary tale for the current government, who's, who's copying many of the, his initiatives, and I, I, I believe the same will happen. I don't think it will uh, reduce costs, and it will have a ne- negative impact on health outcomes.
3: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. (music) Adolescents represent over a quarter of the world's population, and yet when it comes to health, they have suffered from decades of neglect. While global efforts have improved the health of children, the leading cause of deaths for adolescents has remained virtually unchanged since 1990. A new report has revealed that road injuries, self-harm, violence and tuberculosis are still the main cause of death for 10 to 24-year-olds. They are deaths that are easily preventable. So why haven't we intervened? Nina Kopel spoke to Peter party researcher with the Centre for Adolescent Health at the University of Melbourne to ask him how the world has let young people fall through the gaps.
0: Many of the risk factors for poor health experienced during adulthood, particularly the non-communicable diseases, so things like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancers, stroke, etc., which are now the leading causes of poor health globally. So many of those risk factors arise during adolescence and are potentially modifiable. So what I'm really getting to are things like tobacco smoking, physical inactivity, obesity.
2: So you've mentioned health concerns there already or specific issues that are causing this problem, things like tobacco, things like mass (coughs) migration. But these are issues that affect the greater population at, at large. So why is this group of people from 10 to 24 years of age particularly impacted?
0: We're increasingly understanding that adolescence is a really important developmental stage And so for a long time, we had framed adolescence as largely a stage of pubertal development or of sexual maturation. But we are increasingly understanding that adolescence is a really important time for social development, and so in particularly making that transition from education to employment and starting a family. But I think what we're also starting to understand as well are the really important brain maturations or neurocognitive developments that occur during adolescence as well.
2: In terms of the education you mentioned, mm. did your research look at all at how people were impacted differently in countries like Australia, where there is such a good education offer to people, and other places where adolescents might not be getting the education that they need?
0: It certainly seems that in countries where adolescents, and particularly adolescent females, are able to complete secondary education, those adolescents enjoy a lower rate of fertility, and so the, the implications of that are that you know adolescents who have children earlier have poorer health outcomes themselves. But we also know that children born to adolescent mothers also have poorer outcomes as well. And so certainly one of the key recommendations to come from the commission is improving and assuring access to education is a really great thing. Schools can provide a means for improving the mental health and well-being of young people.
2: How important is that mental health when we're talking about adolescents around the world?
0: So we looked at 188 countries for which data were available and we essentially grouped these countries into three main types of health profile that adolescents are experiencing. So the one thing that was common to all of those country groupings was mental health and certainly there has been very little shift in mental disorder or poor mental health experienced by adolescents globally.
2: So to move away from those mental
0: Uh,
2: illnesses that we've been discussing to some more physical challenges, you've mentioned tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. Why is something like TB, which essentially has a cure, I believe, still such an issue internationally?
0: And that's a really complicated question, I suppose. I would sort of just say that for a long time now, Tuberculosis, again, the focus has largely been on tuberculosis amongst adults and tuberculosis amongst children. In terms of the burden of tuberculosis amongst adolescents, well, firstly, that's been largely uncharacterised and unknown. And so the, actually some colleagues of mine here at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute are doing some work now to characterise the, the pattern and determinants of tuberculosis globally. You know, we haven't really been able to characterise what even some of the most pressing health issues for young people have been globally. There's long been the assumption that young people are healthy and don't have any health issues. And so what this commission report actually has been able to do is to actually paint a picture of what some of the leading health issues are to actually inform policy and programme. I think we still have a long way to go though now in terms of understanding exactly what the determinants of these health issues are. So for example you know, to take the example of tuberculosis, you know, why so many young people are experiencing tuberculosis? Is it because they're acquiring the infection primarily or is it because that there's been a incomplete treatment as a child and how we can actually best respond to these health issues as well?
2: Another issue that's raised in this research is the frequency that adolescents and young people are victims and perpetrators of of crime and criminal offence. So how does that how does that play out when we talk about trying to maintain adolescents' health?
0: Around 10% of the world's adolescent population live in countries where, in addition to this burden of non communicable disease, they are also experiencing high rates of injury. And so these countries largely are in Latin America and Eastern Europe. And particularly, you know, important causes of injury here relate to firearms. But also as well, you know, road traffic and, and um, unintentional injuries as well. So in terms of responding to these settings, you know, actually looking at the legislative frameworks is going to be really important.
2: Is this the beginning of a greater body of research about adolescents' health around the world?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. If we go back, you know, even 10 years, we didn't know and we couldn't describe what, the, what adolescent mortality rate was globally and why adolescents were dying. Now, what happened in 2007 was the first adolescent health series where we were able to describe what some of the issues were at a global level, so not at a country level, but at a global level for adolescents. But certainly what this report here is bringing is a shift in thinking, highlighting that the health of adolescents is not just important to their health, but to the health of the next generation and to future adults as well.
3: Nina Kopel, speaking there with Peter Azapati about the leading cause of death among adolescents.
4: You're listening to Think Health on 2 1073
3: Women are the highest users of complementary medicine, so it comes as no surprise that they use them a lot during two key life stages, pregnancy and menopause. Last week on the show, we spoke about how pregnant women were using complementary and alternative medicine, also known as CAM. CAM is things like yoga, herbal medicine, acupuncture and osteopathy. This week, we take a look at how menopausal women use complementary medicine. Women can experience two types of menopause, surgical and natural. Surgical menopause is an induced menopause and occurs when a woman's ovaries are removed. Natural menopause happens when women stop menstruating. The symptoms associated with both types of menopause differ – But many, such as hot flushes and night sweats, are similar. Hormone replacement therapy is a common way to reduce some of the symptoms associated with menopause. But many women still choose complementary medicine to ease symptoms. Wenbo Peng is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. Wenbo has been studying how this
1: group of women use complementary medicine. It really depends on, on different women, yeah. But uh, I I have to say, for the overall symptoms, uh, includes hot flashes, sweats, um, like the mood disorders, like anxiety, dispres- uh, depression, uh, headache, leaking, you know, the urine problems, and the, like the uh vaginal dryness.
3: So, how many women, how many menopausal women are using complementary medicine?
1: Yeah, in my PhD study, um, uh, this is part of the Australian longitudinal study on women's health, which is the largest um, national representative sample of Australian women. It's very difficult for them to find the appropriate uh, therapy to treat the symptoms because for the statement they have mentioned the hormone replacement therapy may be not useful for them or maybe they will suffer from more side effects so com- complementary medicine may be um, you know the option for them <laughs> so, so your
3: so your study has just looked at women yes. age 60 and over
1: yeah yeah from 59 to 64 years and uh, for my study they have more than 10,000 australian women in this age group and uh, they have been divided into uh, surgical menopause and uh, natural menopause and also uh, we included I think eleven symptoms, menopause-related symptoms, in this study, and we found um, almost forty percent of these uh, menopause women who are aged uh, from fifty-nine to sixty-four years uh, in Australia, and they were used. They have consulted complementary and alternative medicine practitioners. So for the CAM practitioners I mentioned here, uh, we. Uh, uh, refers to uh, massage therapist, uh, naturopath or herbalist, and chiropractors or osteopaths, and the uh, uh, acupuncturist. Is there a certain
3: type of complementary medicine that these women are using more than others?
1: Yes, for the complementary medicine practitioners, they were more likely to consult massage therapists and uh, chiropractors or osteopaths. And I found it why they use massage therapists and the chiropractors or osteopaths more prevalent than the other chem practitioners just because they were more likely to suffer from back pain or the, you know, drought pain or the other musculoskeletal problems.
3: When we're th- talking about the evidence mm-hmm. base, a lot of complementary medicine, there's no yeah. solid evidence backing it up. Exactly. Is there any evidence to suggest that these practices relieve or alleviate some of these menopausal mm-hmm. symptoms?
1: Yeah, for my study, we are focusing on using the public health methodology to examine complementary medicine use among menopausal women in Australia. So my research is not focused on the, you know, to test the efficacy of each chem practitioner therapy for Certain symptoms. So, if you ask me about the clinical evidence, I have to say, as far as I know, it, all the kind of uh, evidence is from the public, uh, the published articles.
3: So, it's more about understanding how many women and exa- yeah. what they're using it for. I guess yes,
1: and uh, we would like to, you know, set this as a proof or the evidence base for the clinical trial or for the further clinical practice. So, if we can get any fund, any funding, or any conclusion about the use of specific chem, practi- chem practitioners or the specific chem therapies, the prevalence of each uh, practitioners or the pra- uh, or the treatments among, Austri- uh, among Australian menopause women, so we can give the clinical trial some hints about. Maybe they they should focus on this therapy because this one is very popular.
3: So something we found out last week on the program, we were talking about pregnant women yeah. who are using complementary medicine. Is that sometimes that they are self prescribing it? Is yeah. that does that happen with menopausal women as well?
1: Yes, I think for I I have no idea the prevalence rate of pregnant women, but in menopausal women, the prevalence rate is as high as seventy per,
3: uh, 75%. 75% yeah. of women are self-prescribing. Three
1: quarters. As you see, if they, maybe they just read the books or they hear from the other menopause women or from their friends or from their family members, they said, oh, I use this herb and I think it's very useful for me and it can relieve my symptom." Maybe so she just she will just go to the like the camps or the supermarket to buy it. <laughs> that's that's I a know. bit scary. Yeah, and also so that's why now some of the clinical trials they were more focused on the vitamin supplements and uh, or some herbs. Yeah, because no one can guarantee whether they don't have any interactions between the herbs or uh, the herbs and the drugs or maybe herbs and herbs. So if you're using uh, if you're using some sort of herb that may interact with you know your heart medication or we, something like that, we don't know. So that's why. But we would like to let the GPs and specialists have a you know let them know. Look, the patient, uh, the menopause women, um, some of them, they use complementary medicine products, but they didn't tell you, and you should notice. You know, should always be aware of you. Uh, You know, maybe your patients, they're using the one type of complementary therapy or the products. You should always, you know, ask them, have you used any chem products? Uh, At least if they know, they may give the patient some idea or some suggestions about how to use it. Or maybe you should consult another chem practitioner.
3: Wenbo Peng postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash think health. You can also tweet us at 2SER. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney, Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Lebeder. See you next week for more.